only because your podcast feed was not crowded enough. I'm Andrew Callahan for the Boston Herald, bringing you Pat's Interference. Brand new Patriots podcast. I am pumped to get off the ground. Thank you for stopping by. But being totally honest here, I don't want to have this intro go any longer than it needs to be. As you probably can tell, we have a jam-packed debut episode. Why? Because this podcast is going to be about everything. I said this in our roughly minute-long explainer episode to get the feed started on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. And the deal is here, I want to cover everything Patriots. So that goes from the front office, the coaching staff, the draft, players, people who used to work for the team, people in media. We'll hear from anonymous scouts and executives and mailbags. I want to hear from you too. Any questions you have, we will get them answered at every single episode from here on out. Because today we have five guests to cover any topic that you would want to hear about right now as we get closer to the draft. They are Tommy Curran, NBC Sports Boston, Kevin Clark from The Ringer, Jeff Howe from The Athletic, Doug Kai from Pro Football Focus, and Mike Giardi from the NFL Network uh, somehow snuck on in here. Security isn't real tight around Pat's interference just yet, but we're new. So with these guys, some draft rumors, some fake trades, some serious analytics talk with Kevin Clark, and lots, lots more. So next time, drop in your mailbag questions to me on Twitter, at underscore Andrew Callahan. And next week, before we get to your questions, we will hit everything in the draft with the ringer's Danny Kelly. So keep that in mind. Stay tuned for the next episode. But in the meantime, these five guys are about to bring it. All right, Mike Giardi, the NFL Network here with us to cover draft rumors. And this might be my new pod, uh, Pat's Interference. So, Mike, you were on at my old one, which I will never forget. It was three years ago today, New England, no huddle, RIP. We did winners and losers of the offseason for about over an hour. And it was a great conversation. But the, the only thing I remember were three words that you said to me, and they were Shaq Mason's boobs. So <laughs> I... <laughs> I have to say I'm almost relieved that Shaq Mason is traded because that can't happen again. I'm not ruling out any further offensive lineman boob talk. Yeah. Um, I can give the context or you can just kind of take this hit early. Well, I mean, look, when you go into the locker room, guys are in various states of undressed and I love Shaq. Great guy. uh, Always fun to talk to. Uh, But Shaq was oddly built kind of has the big stomach, but he had, he had man boobs. They kind of like flopped down and it just, you know, for someone as strong as he is, it, it kind of took me by surprise. I was a little confused by it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it brings me back to the Seinfeld episode. He's got a man's ear or a bro. <laughs> yeah, but look, bro. Like the, the dude got the job done. He was awesome here. And yes. I think I'll tell you the the other point you were making was just Joe Tooney was a little bit more built. And I think Joe either was entering the last year of his deal or just got in the franchise tag. But that was the context. Um, but now we're doing draft. And you dropped a thread the other day on Twitter that I found really interesting. And I just I want to go through that. But first and foremost, let's get to the goods. Patriots are scheduled at 21. Mm-hmm. I think widely the expectation finally has settled in. Everyone is ready for disappointment, either in a trade back or an offensive lineman. Your best guess as we record here less than three weeks out at what the Patriots will do at number 21 is. All right. Well, I think they trade back. That's I mean, that's what I think is going to happen. But if you're saying you're sticking at 21, I think there's a potential that Jordan Davis, the big defensive tackle mm. from Georgia, slips a little bit. He's got um, boobs. Yes. And, and, you know, you and I were talking offline. He has a, he's had a weight problem and his weight has fluctuated and he gained 20 pounds between the end of the season and the college playoffs. And they had to monitor his snaps in the college playoffs, which is kind of crazy. You're building to this point and he couldn't kind of keep himself in line there. Uh, and then obviously he got his weight down again for the combine and he tested like no big man has ever tested. Um, and I think, 
if you can tap into that, I mean, that's an ideal player. Nick Saban has said he's as good an interior player as he's played against in the last decade or so. Right. Um, he'd be someone you pair next to Christian Barmore. And I don't really care what you do at linebacker because I think those guys are just going to eat blockers and it's going to be a lot easier for whoever is behind them to make plays. So I think, you know, as we get closer, that's my feeling that he slips and that he might just be too rich for the Patriots to pass up sort of like Vince Wilfork was all those years ago. They, they weren't expecting Vince to fall to them, but when he did, they happily jumped on it. He I was a 21 too, I think, right? No, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, so I could see that happening, um, which would go against the offensive lineman thing. But I think there are certain players that obviously if they stay there and I think this draft is going to be wonky, I think there's going to be some weird things that happen um, early on that are really going to help shape things. I think I know a lot of people are trying to like, well, this is what's going to go. It's not, I, I don't know that anybody can really predict how the top 10 is going to go. And that's really going to change what happens thereafter. So uh, to me, that's where I'm kind of leaning that, it, that he slips and that would be too rich for them to say no to. Yeah. On that note about the draft draft being wonky, I think it's obviously tied to the quarterbacks, right? Those are the biggest dominoes. They fall earliest now without a clear cut one, two or three. I love this. Like people want to talk generally about the talent being down in the draft or it's going to be, you know, we're not really sure who's going to go where that's the fun of it because we get to a point here now in mid April where I think everyone would happily hit fast forward on the next couple of weeks, just bring us to draft day. Yep. But last year, even you go back, Great class. We knew it was going to be quarterback one, two, and three. Trey Lance was supposedly surprised, but I think if you're paying attention, Mac Jones was never going to the 49ers at that point. And so you really had to wait till four. Here, we could have a surprise right at number one, and that goes all the way through 10. And on a smaller level surprise for me, I think when you look at the Patriots at 21, a name that I had circled early, but he was supposedly going to go top 15, top 20, Trent McDuffie, the corner from Washington. He's a little shorter than you like, not as long, but as far as just you look at him and go, he can play and he fits an immediate need. And I haven't seen him outside of the experts that I respect most fall outside of their top 15 and to top 20. But if this slide continues, supposedly, I mean, I don't know how you pass him up. Yeah, I would. Well, look, I mean, if the crazy thing is after spending all the money they spent last year, there are a lot of holes on the Patriots mm -hmm. roster. And I've sort of been beating this drum over the last 24 hours or so about I looked at, I had to do it for an exercise for a podcast on the NFL network where I looked at the AFC East and what are the needs as they head into the draft and the Patriots had more needs than the jets, the dolphins or the bills. Now I'm not saying that their roster is worse than the jets. It's right. Not, they're not all they're weighted gonna, equally, you know, but, the jets quarterback worse than Mac Jones too, probably too. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But when you start to look at how they fulfilled needs and free agency, what they've done in the last couple drafts, you're like, well, that position is, you know, they have a player for that position. That's they project to be pretty good. And I look at the Patriots and I say, you don't have a left guard. You have a tackle problem forthcoming. You need a corner, maybe two. You need a Devin McCourty replacement probably sooner than later. I, I'm, you know, I think every year you get with McCourty at this point and still continue to play at a pretty good level. You have to say, okay, well, is this going to be it? And then, they need a space eater inside because I didn't think Devon Gottschall was very good last year and they're paying him a lot of money. Yep. And then, you know, I know a lot of people wanted the sexy pick and want a wide receiver. That's like, that's down here. At least I have guys I know who are NFL players that I can run out at wide receiver. Um, there's some other places where I'm not sure I have enough pieces to, to feel the kind of team I want to field. So 
you know, would a shifty slot receiver in the Edelman Welker type be wonderful for Mac Jones? Yep. I just, it's not coming in the first round in my opinion, and it may not come until day three. And then when you're, you know, day three is maybe it's, maybe he doesn't, who knows? Yeah. Guys who fall to day three typically have a major hole in their game or as a part of the package, right? These are guys with character concerns that were, you know, definite second round picks or your fourth round pick with great speed, but that's really the one note you can play. You might play it well, but that's about it. Okay. So uh, really quickly, cause I'm going to do a full draft pod with Danny Kelly, of the ringer later on, we're doing some other draft talk. You know, I said, Trent McDuffie, you went with Jordan Davis. If you had a quick plan B or C, just guess at 21. I can safe to say trade back is another option. Any other name that, you know, from what you've heard kind of is top of mind right now. I think Trevor Penning would be tough to -hmm. pass up uh, because, look, I don't, I'm assuming Isaiah Wynn, unless he has a major rebound season, is not your left tackle next year. And with Trent Brown and his playing half the games in the last three years and being someone that they have to put weight clauses in and has lower leg problems, like, I don't know how long you can project him to be your right tackle. Certainly they didn't give him a ton of guaranteed money. So there's question there. I think he'd be one. And I like Andrew Booth. And I know some people say, well, he plays a little bit more off coverage than um, maybe you would like, or maybe the the, the Patriots model would say. He's physical as hell. That guy yeah. he lives to tackle. Yes. He's physical. Um, I've talked to people down there that believe, look, when we, when we had him play press man, when we had him play man, he can play it as well as anybody. Um, he's had some injury concerns. He's coming off the double hernia surgery. So I don't know, you know, does that mean he's not practicing until summertime? I, I, I don't know what the timetable is on that. Patriots did have him in for a visit last week. But I, I really like that player. Like maybe of all the people that I've talked about, he's probably my favorite of that, the three people I talked about. But, you know, will they go corner at 21? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, if, I don't know if I see Bill pulling that, that lever there. Um, you mentioned receivers day two. I'm with you there. I don't want to go through a whole couple of names, but just as far as ones related to the Patriots that you personally see as a fit, but guys that around the league or maybe within the team go, yeah, we could definitely see him here. Second or third round. I mean, Mechie, Mechie comes up often. Mechie's visiting with the Patriots. Obviously he's got the ACL. So again, you got to gauge where he is in his recovery and how soon you can get him. But I guess to me, the benefit of building the roster the way they have um, and at, to this point, hanging on to Aguilar, Aguilar, Parker, Bourne, uh, Myers, I almost forgot his name, Jacoby Myers. How can I forget Jacoby's name? Longest tenured receiver in the room. Yeah, Right. So you, you have people that are plug and play right now. So you can afford, or at least you can consider affording a guy who's either on a red shirt year, or you're not going to get any kind of play from him until the back half of, of year one. So he, he makes a lot of sense. We know Saban loves him yep. and we know about Saban and Belichick's relationship. So, you know, I'm sure Bill has tapped him in for all the info he can get on him. And I think he's someone that he played a lot outside, but he can play inside as well. Um, gives him a little versatility there. I mean, I'm, I'm personally someone who, I, again, I, I'll say it. I really want a slot. I really want a quick slot. Um, I would imagine I mean, well, who knows? I'm, I'm predicting. I'm looking at the, the crystal ball, but I would imagine Jacoby Myers is probably not here next year. Um, I mean, given the receiver market now, that's a guy who might be pushing close to 10 million if he continues on his, his current right. trajectory, which they're going to say, thank you for your time. Uh, yes, you, um, you are, you're awesome for us. You did, you were selfless. You did wonderful things, but you're undrafted and you have certain measurables that um, we don't usually go for. 
yeah, I could totally see them moving on. Um, the other guy that I like is Shakir from Boise State, mm-hmm. uh, but he's another, he's a day two, probably third round guy, but he's a slot. He's a pure slot. Uh, he's pretty smooth in and out of his breaks. And he, I, I, to me, he clearly would be someone like Mechie who's on a redshirt year, <laughs> even yep. though he's not coming off an injury, but just level of competition is different. It might take him a little time, but you, again, you could be afforded that time with what you have on the roster right now. I want to wrap this up. I'll call this the responsible part of the hit um, because this is all very hard info and things we actually think. And I'm not just like loosely heard, but on the Mechie point, I think you hit it on the head with the, the Saban advice because look, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world covering the Patriots around draft time to make the connection of, Oh, Bill Belichick and Nick Saban, they go way back. But Nick Saban said of John Mechie, he is the epitome of what you look for in a wide receiver. That encompasses all of your route running, how quick you are, what your releases are like, how you can stretch the field playing inside and out. He's the epitome. That's it. Period. End of story. And I think that's a guy I'm with you whose stock takes a hit in this process because of the injury. The Patriots go, forget it. We're drafting for the future at this position, knowing Devontae Parker, Jacoby Myers, Kendrick Bourne, maybe Nelson Aguilar. They're going to fill out our top three. But next year, and most of those guys, you know, either in the they're all in the final year of their contracts or gone in case of Aguilar or Myers. We need someone to step in. Give him some seasoning, keep him around. I like Mitch a lot. Um, all right, so on to the rumor part. We started this with the rumors. Doesn't have to be tethered to the Patriots. Stuff you've heard lately that, you know, maybe you've already said an NFL network or maybe you can't yet because you need a second source. Just kind of like legitimate buzz you like or maybe you like a lot that don't put a whole lot of water into. Yeah, um, so Derek Stanley obviously had his workout and there have been some questions about, you know, how much does he love football? You know, like he didn't basically play for the last two years. He had a great workout. Uh, the buzz I'm hearing is he doesn't get past 12 in the Vikings. Mm-hmm. In fact, that would probably be a great spot for him because Patrick Peterson, another LSU guy there, on and on it goes. Like someone who can sort of show him the ropes. He doesn't have to be the alpha dog. Um, but I, I don't imagine that he slides much further than that. And I think there was some feeling maybe before the workout, if it didn't go well, maybe he's someone who flies all the way into the twenties. Now I don't see him getting past 12, the quarterbacks, which we talked about a little bit are fascinating because I think opinions have changed, but by and large, everyone I talked to Andrew's like, I wouldn't, I would not take one of these guys in the first round. I just wouldn't do it. So we're back um, where we started with that. You know, yes. like we always talk yeah, but, ourselves but into these guys. We're back where we started, but you know, what's going to happen on day one, right? Someone right. is going to pick, you know, Malik Willis or wh- whatever, whoever it's going to be and say like, well, oh, we coach this guy up like Willis. If you, I talked to a couple of people who really dove into his tape and they're like, they don't run a lot of concepts with him. He's got a wonderful arm and he's a smart kid. He's impressed everybody in the interview. So they're not worried about that, but it's just like, he's, he might be Trey Lance away from the NFL. In other words, like he just, maybe you could spot him here or there, but like, he's not ready to play right away. Um, Now, if you look at some of the teams in the first round that need quarterbacks, most of them all have at least a veteran piece in place. If you go as high as Carolina has Darnold, right. Um, Mitch Trubisky signs with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has done a lot of work on Willis. So there are teams that he could go to and be the backup. Um, but I'm just curious to see how that falls. I think the other thing that's interesting is that I think Ritter's of all the guys, I think Ritter's stock has come up more 
than everyone else. I think there's, a, you know, obviously there's a level of maturity to the kid. He's a father, not that that means anything, but I think people see him and the way he led that group. He gets the pro ready tag, right? Yeah, like he, the, I mean, the he, knock on Willis you bring up is they didn't run a whole lot of stuff. It doesn't mean he yep. can't learn it, but that's all you have right now. You go to Ritter and these are three level concepts. He's moving, making ch- checks at the line, all that. Yeah. And then people are petrified of, of Matt Corral, like really mm. small, skinny. He's 190, 195 pounds. He plays a little bit fearlessly and they're like, okay, you can do that at your level. You come up here and try to do that. I mean, think about Baker Mayfield a few times where, you know, in Oklahoma, he's running around, he's making these plays and you're like, okay, dude, but you can't, you won't be able to outrun the defensive end who runs a four, four, five or a four five in the NFL. And he gets here and he tries to do it. And then the next thing, you know, his shoulders hanging off and like, he just, I think people look at Corral and say like, he's not even have that same sort of thickness build. Like he's a skinny kid. Um, so I, yeah, I, he, he would be someone who wouldn't surprise me if like, we're looking at him in the third round, like he mm-hmm. could be the one that sort of free falls out of the first couple rounds. What about a surprise though? First round, if anything, you're hearing along those lines, this guy is not being talked about could jump up really high non quarterback. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is, um, cross from Mississippi state who, you know, a month ago, Three weeks ago, I think people were considering him as maybe the best tackler, you know, like in that conversation. And now you talk to more people and some see him sliding. And it's, I think, through no fault of his own. I think he's a really good player. He's a pass blocker. He didn't have to run block at all. I think part of that's a projection thing. But there may be some runs on positions. Some people definitely like Penning better. There's some people that like Ryman better. Um, So, you know, is all of a sudden he's sitting there in the 20s? like? Because there, there were, if you go back, probably just three weeks ago, right? There's mocks that have him top five, top six, top seven, somewhere in that range. And now you're sort of getting the sense that this team kind of likes Penning better and this team likes Ramen better. And, you know, does he end up? Well, and your, your guy at the network, Daniel Jeremiah, has had him low 20s too, you know? Yeah. So he's a guy who I think I trust just because of obvious, his obvious connections in the league. He's thorough, takes the approach he learned with the Browns. Eagles and Ravens and applies that to his work now. And I've spoken to him a few times that to me, it says he's ahead of the curve where we're now all hearing at a place where teams are comfortable with their boards. Yeah. We'll tell you a guy we don't like, or maybe we try to put some feelers out there and that I, I've not heard directly myself the cross, but I've, I've read similar things starting with DJ. Uh, and I'll give you another one too, just on the wide receiver front. I think Peter Schrager dropped this on good morning football. So he, he said there are five consensus first rounders, so that's what we got uh, Williams, we got Alave, we have Garrett Wilson, Traylon Burks, and who am I missing? Oh, Drake and London. Drake London, right? Mm-hmm. So there's your five. But there's more pushback this year. Not that the receiver class isn't good again, but the idea that people are comparing this receiver class to the last two, I'm I, more people are starting like, you know, it's not as deep. There's not as many high-end prospects couple of these guys that are projected first rounders, you know, Burks is an interesting guy. Didn't run great. Sort of a gadget guy at Arkansas. That's a little odd to me. Kind of gave me the Nikhil Harry shakes, but maybe Ooh. that's just my, Ooh. yeah, that's maybe just, that's my local bias here. Um, Trying so, to get people yeah, to still I, listen here. I can't have those references <laughs> and have people jumping ship right now. <laughs> right. So it's just, I don't know. So that, that's, that's interesting to me that that maybe the 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 high end is not nearly what the high end has been over the last couple of years. And, you know, and you're looking at these second day guys that everybody's, you know, like I like Sky Moore a lot. He, in fact, if I had a pick, he'd be my pick for the Patriots if they could tab him early in the second round, because I think that's probably where he fits. 
Um, but there's there's a lot of varying opinions about that second tier group. And I don't think it's as highly thought of as, as what we've had the last couple of years. I like it. All right. I said this was the irresponsible part. Let's get uh, very carefully, but reckless because I, I've been watching your Twitter as I, as I often do. <laughs> and I, I respect your work and I, I can kind of tell when you want to say something, but for whatever reason, you only have one source on something. Someone else at the network has to say it because you're passing it on up. But you've been on the Brady thing, retirement, unretirement, all this wacky stuff. I don't want to review that whole part, but Mike Giardi, this is your time and your floor. What have you not been able to say that you can say right now about the whole Brady saga? I'll give you 60 seconds. Yeah, I don't know that I'm still allowed to say it. I'll just, I just think that the whole thing was, um, was handled very poorly, oddly, and mm. the end result is not what the quarterback wants, but here you are. Like, I, I think Tampa, you're under contract. If you're going to play, you're going to play for us. Now, what happens next year? Uh, you know, if he wants to keep playing, I'm not sure he's playing in Tampa. Um, but for now, he's sort of tethered to that program. But it's it, it's been interesting to see how that's all played out. And I think for people that sort of, keep their ear to the ground a little bit. You kind of sense that this was how it was going to trend. And here it is. He's still the quarterback at Tampa. Not sure he wants to be, but that's where he is. All right. I appreciate it. I could see you kind of waffling in and out, like a little seesaw <laughs> internally. Do I say it? Do I go back? And you stayed somewhat in the middle, but if people don't believe me, go back. There's a lot of, Hmm. Or would you think about that? What were your favorite? There were a couple other quote tweets I'm forgetting, but like kind of, I knew, I knew this was coming. Yeah, that, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, even go back to his playbook on this, like the retirement and then, you know, people getting mad in his defense because he should be, he's Tom Brady, he should be allowed to announce his retirement whenever he wants. It shouldn't be broken by uh, Jeff Darlington and Adam Schefter, to which I be, say, should be my yeah, majority. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, shut up. Like, <laughs> if, if, if that information ends up in your lap, and you don't use it, you'll, you'll hate yourself for the rest of your life. Like someone gave that to them who was reputable. So, but it was, it was very, um, it was just very clunky, very, very poorly handled. And it's kind of funny when you look back on Brady, especially I want to say over the last, I don't know, six, seven years, he's had a lot of like weird PR missteps. And I'm, you know, I'm not talking about like things that get him in trouble. I'm just talking about things that like, like for a guy who's been doing this for a long time and has a team around him, you didn't handle this well. You didn't handle that well. You went into a press conference about the flake gate and had no idea that you were going to be grilled like you were when, dude, the room was filled with like sharks. Like there was, and just did not, was not prepared, did not handle it well. I think at the end in New England with the, the, the way he sort of, you know, distanced himself from the team, you know, never mind wearing the TB12 stuff, which I guess they all do at this point with their own little brands, but like he constantly like separated himself from the group. And it just, it, it was odd. It was, it was sort of telling about where he's gone over the last five, six years. So we got to go. 
but I'm ticked at myself because I feel like I finally got you to lean back on my therapy couch, as it were, and you're starting to let this off your chest. And we've, we've made real progress here, Michael. And I'd love to make progress with you again. Maybe not on Brady. We can work into some deeper stuff. Yeah. For what it's worth, I agree from my limited experience, two years of covering Brady, um, but all was not well. And you could tell that even in those 15-minute press conferences we got for him on Fridays. Uh, but Mike Giardi, obviously follow his Twitter. As it's, I've made clear that I do. You'll see him on a TV near you. The draft is going to be fun. You're all over it for the Patriots and more. Appreciate your time, my guy. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, a man who needs no introduction now, Tommy Curran of NBC Sports Boston here on Pat's Interference. Um, Tom, you're not going to get a choice of this. No foreplay. We're going to get straight into the coaching. Fair. All right. Hey, congratulations Go. on the pod. I'm going to say that because I think you're a great voice. Um, and I love your diligence and I love your perspective. So thanks for having me, Andrew. All right. You know what? Maybe I can do a little foreplay. That, that felt pretty good. Uh, appreciate you, Tommy. Uh, so coaching, I did your pod a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned something that got my attention and we're going to get to that in a couple minutes, but basically I think the greatest worry in new England from what I can tell is coaching, right? Joe mm-hmm. judge, Matt Patricia are back. They're not only back, they're in different roles that are very foreign to them. So to me, this forces the rest of us to ask questions that we never really did when Brady was here, right? We can all say that quarterback coaches matter. We know offensive play callers matter, but how much? So my perspective, and I might have even said this on your airwaves, is this upcoming season will be decided as much on Belichick's evaluation of those two, his assessment and belief in them, as any player or two on the roster. Those are the stakes of this Matt Patricia, Joe Judge shift, in my opinion. What say you? This is the most important developmental season for Mac Jones. He's going to work with an offensive line that lost its offensive line coach, and Matt Patricia will oversee that. Matt Patricia's defensive coach. He's been a head coach. I'm sure he knows what guards, tackles, centers are, pull blocks, trap blocks, everything else. I'm sure he knows it well. But when we talk about the hierarchy of coaches, Patriots have gone from Dante Skarnecchia to Cole Popovich and um, Carmen Brasillo. Thank you, Carmen Brasillo, to just Carmen Brasillo, to now, I guess, Matt Patricia without a title, being paid by the Lions and on a short cash deal with the Patriots as a consultant and do-it-all guy. So there'll probably be another name attached, but right now that to me looks like a tough proposition before we even get to the personnel that Matt is charged with. Meanwhile, Joe Judge... You know, you have a a guy who was a special teams coach, played quarterback, but in the one year that he was a split-time wide receivers coach slash special teams coach, and just as an aside, you're not going to find a lot of staffs that are asking one guy to be a coordinator and a position coach. And this does circle back in many ways to me to Bill Belichick's, yes, faith in his guys, but also an unwillingness to bring in outside voices. If you didn't grow up in the Patriots hothouse, you're not going to be trusted to take something on, which is fine to a degree. But when you have just this incestuous coaching. It's a circle of ideas. You don't break yeah, Petri out dish. perspective. You know, so no, I'm not high on just where things are headed, Andrew. Okay, we'll get to optimism in a second. And I teased what you said last week or a couple of weeks ago in your pod was just speaking on Joe Judge. Two things on that. We learned from Jabril Peppers um, a couple of days ago that Joe was more involved with the offense than the defense, or really special teams in New York. They had 
one of the worst offenses in the league that by the end of the year, even after firing Jason Garrett was the worst. Secondly, in 2019, you mentioned that the coaching, some of the receivers got from Joe judge in his first year in that position um, was lackluster where they weren't a huge fan of that. Is there anything more you can add to that before we get into, maybe there's a reason for optimism here. Sure. With Joe judge, again, I got to know him in his first go around here and he's not a, first of all, the constant disclaimer, like him, had great conversations with him, certainly would respect his football mind, his acumen, and I'm not surprised he got a crack at a, a head job because of the cut of his jib. <sighs> but he coached wide receivers, and during that season, I was told that there were wide receivers who were unhappy with the coaching they were getting to the point where they felt as if Joe Judge didn't know more than them. Mm. And there were blowups at practice, or at least one that I know of, in which a receiver said, you don't know what you're talking about. Not what you're looking for. Additionally, I think Joe has a great ability to portray confidence. And I was told by, by folks who, you know, within the organization, who said, you know, Joe does a great job of presenting himself confidently and then he gets into something and you don't always have the same confidence you start to realize that guys aren't being prepared in the way that you expected so bill has put an awful lot on his plate he's a capable guy smart guy young guy persuasive guy but i wonder if he's been thrown into the deep end coaching a second year franchise quarterback for a dynasty mm -hmm a little too hastily. And it's interesting the way you frame that too, because I assume you heard that about judge. You're going to be confident going in. And then once the bleep hits the fan, you're going, you know, that was around 2019 or before then, because that to me sounds like his giants experience. No nails, the interview with that ownership group. They love him. They stick through him all the way until that bizarre press conference in the last season. And he can't talk his way out of, you know, sticking around for a third year and gets canned. Yeah. You know, you look at, that 2019 season and certainly you had Brady in his final year with the team and the Patriots didn't do an awesome job of bringing guys in, but it was Edelman Hogan. No, we had Nikhil Harry. Etiquette Dor Dorsett, Harry Myers, Myers, Sanu joining the team midway through mm -hmm. and Sanu couldn't find his ass with both hands. And that's a guy who was in the, the league for eight years and didn't know really where to go. Yeah. So what's lacking there? Why aren't those guys able to get up to speed quickly enough to, to learn things? Some of it's on Brady being a prick, maybe. And some of it's on the player himself. Maybe some of it's on McDaniels. But there's a, there's a position coach with whom the buck does stop. Yeah. Okay. Reasons for optimism. Because I think we made everyone feel bad to worse. And I think that that's reasonable, right? That's, that's where you and I are aligned on this. I think... Here's my one point for optimism is I look back over the last four or five seasons. How did quarterbacks who changed offensive play callers from their rookie seasons going into year two fair in year two? Because that speaks to what you opened with, right? Year two is the most important piece of your development after your first full offseason. You're in the system. The excuses are down to very, very few. Five of six quarterbacks who fit that criteria had a higher QBR in year two, despite the change in offensive system and play caller. Not only that, but their QBRs jumped by an average of 8.3 points. So Mac Jones goes from last year, by that metric at least, 
the 16th best quarterback in the league. And if the order and the numbers stay the same, 8.3 points more of QBR would put him at number seven. Now, I'm not saying Mac Jones is going to be the seventh best quarterback. I don't think he'll be in the top 10 next season. But it points to an area where quarterbacks, if you're good, you're going to be fine almost regardless and kind of elevate above coaching, which gets to the question I asked early. How much does coaching matter? Largely, it depends. And it feels like if you're going to be okay anyway, which to me, Mac Jones is a guy who controls his destiny as much as anyone, he might be fine. Might be. But again, anecdotal evidence from guys like, for instance, I remember Colt McCoy talking about in 2011. He was a good player in 2010. 2011, they had a strike season lockout. He missed all of that offseason. Came back, said, it it absolutely kneecapped my career. I didn't have the chance to develop. Now, there's no lockout for Mac Jones. He looks good and he's already working with guys. But what offense is he running? And if there's going to be a revamp to the offense, there's no contact allowed right now. Sure, there might have been an email here and there someplace on a, you know, deep state account. But, <laughs> you know, we can project that Johnu Smith will be better and Hunter Henry will incrementally improve. And Nelson Aguilar should be better. And Kendrick Bourne, all those guys. So all of the cream, the, the arc of their improvement should all continue as individuals. But if Nick Cayley is the play caller, which I think that he might be, and we'll see how that un, un, unfolds. And Joe Judge is in charge. They have learning to do. And there is always learning by trial and error. So there will be error. No question. And that, I'll, that's I'll why I that's why I push back. But yeah. to to not be a you know, Debbie Downer on the entire thing, reason for optimism, they have to get better. That's what happens with second year guys in the system. They're spending time right now in April throwing together. That matters. Um, my turn to be a Debbie Downer. A, okay. you could go small sample because I think everyone, media fans have caught on to samples matter. Um, I mentioned five of six quarterbacks had gotten better in year two despite the system change. Do you know who the lone exception was? Do you have a guess? Who didn't get better despite the change? He Sam Darnold. Team. No. <laughs> Daniel Jones. Dan- Daniel. <laughs> Thanks to uh, new head coach Joe Judge and offensive coordinator Jason Garrett. So, that, that's where I'm at. I, I think I'm with you. Mac Jones is going to get better. The, the, I think where the difference will probably be right in terms of the offensive play caller and the quarterback's coach is going to be in the margins. You know, the big picture stuff is fine. The talent is there. He should improve. Mac Jones is a guy who takes charge of what he wants to do and improve upon. And you just let him go. He's a self-starter. That's fine. But when it's in the fourth quarter and you need the right play call or a third mm-hmm. and six, and you anticipate where a particular blitz is coming from, even though they hadn't shown it the last three or four weeks on tape, that's where I think you win and lose a with this team, which doesn't have a big margin for error offensively and in the league as a whole, especially considering it feels like the whole AFC got better. And one last thing on that sideline competency. Mm. We saw down the stretch, surprising miscues in just the, you know, the execution of the offense. Remember Josh McDaniels with the, what are we doing when Mac had to take a timeout? Look, there's, there is so much where there has to be a mind meld and you have to be able to do it in the heat of the moment in crunch time situations, situationally with a lot of poop hitting the fan over on the sidelines and Joe judge is, is, is wired tightly wound tightly. So 
Let's move on to the guy who I know that you have on a list of things to talk about other offensive assistants. Can I, can I, can I jump ahead and just yeah. mention? No, I, I love that because it ties into the sideline competency where, you know, you mentioned McDaniels, he's in Vegas, took Mick Lombardi, former receivers coach and to be his offensive coordinator, his presence I think will be felt because he was someone who organized the red zone offense, something a lot of people don't know. And whoever stepped into his role doing that, be it Troy Brown or perhaps Ross Douglas, who for all, we've seen the clues this offseason is going to move from defensive assistant to some form of receivers coach. That's an area too, where you might have a little improvement or it could get worse. But like those other roles basically matter beyond Joe judge and Matt Patricia. Yeah. That red zone offense last year was breathtakingly improved from the previous year. Yes. So chalk it up to the quarterback, chalk it up to the, the, the targets, whatever it, it just executed better brilliantly in, at times. So Nick Cayley, is a is a coach who coached tight ends. When I was with Edelman at the Super Bowl, speaking to him um, for NBC Sports Boston, I asked him about the Patriots coaching staff and who would be the play caller because at that point McDaniel's seemed destined to go elsewhere. And I said, "What about Joe Judge as a play caller?" He goes, mm, "I don't know." And he goes, "Mick Lombardi or Nick Cayley, they might be pretty good at it." Mm-hmm. So I think we have the view of Nick Mick Lombardi as being, you know, oh, he's Mike's kid, nepotism. People really had high regard for him. Nick Cayley, there's high regard as well from a guy like Julian Edelman, who I would trust implicitly with an evaluation. All right. Offensive staff to defensive staff, a guy you know very well, Gerard Mayo. This was an interesting conversation I had around the combine with a couple of people around the league, including Broncos uh, GM George Patton, who my colleague Karen Garigian got a hold of, asking about Mayo, who obviously interviewed with the Broncos. In addition to her conversation and some people I talked to, universal opinion was he's gone in a year or two. And it's not so much that Gerard is itching to get out. He wants the right opportunity, but he's made very clear, like few Patriots assistants do, I will be a head coach someday. And that's what I heard from people who said, I like him. I like him a lot. Quote, I think he's got a lot of good qualities, but these are just big, big jobs. So it's like another year or two of experience. How long do you think Gerard stays? And do you think his role and dynamic with Steve Belichick shifts at all this season? I think he stays. Look, the Patriots can't close a season the way they did in 2021 and have their defensive coaches be any team's idea of an answer. Mm -hmm. And as much as I like Gerard, you can't be an architect or even a builder of a defense that doesn't allow a team to punt or force a team to punt in the last two games and then, you know, get unveiled as the head coach with all the answers. Matt Patricia got a job in Detroit after getting torn a new one by Blake Bortles and the Jaguars in the AFC Championship game and Nick Foles in the Super Bowl. And it lays at Bill's feet to a degree, but that was Matt Patricia's defense. And I don't know who's calling the defense. I do know that they don't want to be co-coordinators, Gerard and Steve, because there's a feeling that that's not really the, the distribution of, of responsibility. Um, Steve's a play caller. Gerard, to my understanding, is more of the architect, but it's a triumvirate of guys who's work, who are working together. So the upshot is if the Patriots defense performs capably, there are so many things that recommend Gerard Mayo before you get to the fact that he happens to be a black man. He's an all pro level player. He's incredibly charismatic. 
He has worked in the business world, not as a figurehead, but as, a, as an entrepreneur and also with Optum as an executive. So he understands economics. Um, he's charismatic. I think I might've already said that. And in a league that's dying for diversity, he's the perfect guy to bring in and lead a group of young men and understand what delegating, delegating, delegating is all about. So, well, let me add one more because I think I learned this more. I'm prattling on here. I'm sorry. Gerard. No, no, I liked it. Delegating. Um, let's delegate over here. Uh, Gerard, I think most importantly, and this goes for coaching or leadership anywhere, he is comfortable, and this isn't a race comment, in his own skin, right? Like he is Gerard Mayo. He knows who he is. He's secure in his abilities, his strengths, and his weaknesses. And that naturally draws people to you. And it happened with him as a player, as far as I heard from guys like Gerard Harmon, Devin McCourty a couple of years ago when Gerard comes on and I'm writing, how does he have a position coach job in his first year? He's the fastest rising assistant ever under Bill. And I think it speaks to that, that a, he's a smart guy. Yes. He he's well-rounded. He's a former player, but he knows who he is. And that's the ultimate secret. I think in those positions where sometimes former Patriots assistants, especially you don't have that quality. You're doing a bill impression because you don't feel you have the kind of the security of self or your credibility outside of New England need to prove something. Gerard Mayo says, if you hire me or you put me in this position on Bill's defensive staff, you know I'm good. I know I'm good. Let's just get to work. Yeah. He's absolutely undaunted and fearless. I mean, I've spoken to him. We've talked to him on those uh, Zoom calls. The upshot is, if you say, Gerard, do you want to be a head coach? Yep. Yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. Yesterday. I did. I have. I'm ready. I'm good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which isn't to say he feels like... he just wants some like some kids want to move out at 18. Some kids don't want to move out until they're 26. He wants to move out. Not to a point where he's undermining. I mean, he's going to, but he wants to spread his wings. He's that way. He is not a soldier. He's a general. Yeah. I love it. Perfect. All right. So we got to go, but real quick, anything on coaching we didn't cover yet. Final thoughts. I'll say this because of their last name, Steve and Brian Belichick get a shit deal. Mm. Steven Belichick came up the right way, earned his stripes is very well respected and shouldn't be downgraded because his last name is Belichick. And I hate to hear it. And we do it on our channel and the same thing with Brian, who is certainly not as, as prominent, but look, good coach, bad coach. I don't think he's a bad coach, but should he be in line for criticism? Absolutely, Andrew. But um, the knee-jerk deriding of the Belichick boys on the coaching staff, I think that would be my my final thought. They know what like they're it. doing. And let me, let me piggyback on that really quickly. Steve Belichick has been involved in calling plays since 2019. Two of those three seasons, they have finished with a top three scoring defense in the entire league. So all of this crap that you mentioned, he gets, oh, it's Bill's kid. A, Bill is still very involved in that defense. It's always going to be his defense. But there's not a whole lot statistically that says, beyond, of course, how they finished last year, which is important, he's royally screwing this thing up. And if you can't tell me anything he does beyond calling plays, right, and he's in charge of the outside linebackers, and there's a good point about development there, then you can't put all the blame at his feet. So I'm with you. Too much blame for him and, and people I talked to for that story in 2019 when he first started calling plays. Alana Roberts, Patrick Chung, guys universally loved him, but it wasn't because he was doing some sort of 
you know, players coach act. He's Bill Belichick's son, and they respected him for the acumen and how he was in his own skin about dealing with that because what else do we ask about him whenever we get a chance? Forget Gerard for a second. Hey, you know, when he's talking to the media, it's about being Bill Belichick's son, not Steve. But Steve has done a good job in that role. Good deal. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate Anytime. it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. You're my guy. I'll have you back. See you, Tom. All right. Okay, Kevin Clark of The Ringer is here to talk draft analytics in the Patriots, and I owe you for coming on here in the first place, but I really owe you for hosting a panel at Sloan last year. We got <laughs> Nick Casario to basically confess how the Patriots do business behind closed doors, so thank you for that, and uh, otherwise, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah, Nick was not able, so I, I did Sloan last year. I was the, the moderator, and I did it this year, but this year was during the NFL Combine, and so we unfortunately couldn't get Nick again. So I couldn't give you another year of quotes about how the Patriots do business. Maybe next year, Andrew. Yeah, I hope so. It was funny. Like I, I was thinking back to that piece. It was his first year, obviously, in Houston, and it was like he had broken out of Shawshank and was so excited to tell everyone how like they keep prisoners there. And these are how specific we get into because it, like he was cagey generally. Right. But relative to everything I had heard, it was like he was a songbird. Mm. Yeah, Interesting. I, yeah, no, I, I thought he was great. And, and, you know, the Patriots obviously have had a relationship um, with Sloan for a long time, Jessica Gelman, and just the fact that it's in Boston. And, and um, I think Robert Kraft was in the audience this year mm. for, uh, one of the NFT things, because Michael Rubin was there. So obviously there's there's a lot of um, intertwining there as far as the Patriots and Sloan go, even though Belichick, what did he call it? The Northeastern Conference? I mean, it's, it's probably his best bit, right? Like just the anti-analytics. I don't, you know, we don't use them. They're poo-poo them. Jonathan Kraft is also there every single year, I think, speaking. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah and But he, he said... Uh, Belichick obviously does the face snap stuff and the snap snap book or whatever. But yeah. then he also called this the Northeastern Analytics Conference, which I think Kevin Seifert wrote it up and was basically like, you know, he's been honored at this and has like given speeches on how important like MIT Sloan is to yeah. the community. And then he gets up there and he's in, he's in, let's talk about the, uh, the Browns mode. And that's nope, Northeastern. I love the guy. I love Bill Belichick's press conferences. He is, he is. Hall of Fame troll with some of that stuff in addition to football <laughs> coach and mind and master, like uh, uh, everything, but it's just, it's a great fit. So um, here's what I wanted to do. Get into what Nick said last year. I wrote this yeah. up for the Herald, as I mentioned, and also just update what you know, because you've obviously written about yeah. the analytics of football for a long time to so go over that. So I had four takeaways um, from last year, from what Nick Casario speaking about his experience, which was all tied to new England. Then he said, quote, analytics are into every facet of football operations. So that, that kills the narrative Patriots use and like analytics. Secondly, he said that they had done a study once where there was no correlation between arm length and yeah. success at a particular position. I posited that's offensive tackle based on some of the other guys they, they took anything you I remember so. from that. No, I, I agree with you. I read your write up afterwards. Um, and it was pretty, I, I thought it was offensive tackle. That seemed right to me. Um, and I also think that the, the narrative of the Patriots not using analytics, I don't know where that came from. I did a pretty big story. Maybe the Patriots put that out there. It's, um, because, it's, it's all yeah, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Because it's funny because I did a big story in 2018, I want to say, about analytics and its rise in the NFL. And Andrew, one of the interesting things was that someone said this to me. And it's been kind of, it was never said this succinctly to me, but it's been echoed by a lot of people since, which is that if Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, knocked on the door of Bill Belichick in 2003 and somehow got him to explain 
how they use numbers, how they use data, how they use just basic economic principles, not to the level of Billy Bean. There's no on-base percentage in the in the NFL, but they used it they used analytics the whole time. And the, the this person said to me, if that had happened, if Michael Lewis had written Moneyball of Bill, Bill Belichick, football would be almost where baseball is now. The roles would be totally reversed. And all of these guys who okay, went from banks to the Pittsburgh Pirates front office over the past 20 years would be doing it with the Lions. Like yeah. there's, a, there's an alternate history here where if the Patriots were open about how much they use numbers, the whole thing would be different. Because what do we say? The NFL is a copycat league. That's such a cliche, but it's true. And if the Patriots had ever been honest about how much they used numbers, data, all that stuff, you would have seen, you know, the, the, Seahawks and the Rams and the Chargers adopted stuff in 2006. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's what Ernie Adams was doing here behind the shadows and yeah. everything for the longest time, which people familiar with New England knows who Ernie Adams was. But secondarily, there was some quote, and I haven't been able to track it down since, but I remember reading once that Bill explained, if someone asked, if you could explain in one word, how have you won two Super Bowls out of three years? And then of course it gets to three and four and now they're at six. And his answer was economics. So another yeah. one just... Narrative done over six feet uh, into the ground, and that's it. Two other takeaways, and this was my favorite one because this became the headline of the piece. Casario basically said, there's not a totally useless metric, uh, but the 40-yard dash is kind of dumb. <laughs> we, we don't need it. We don't use it. Yeah. And I think it's obvious for you know offensive linemen or other positions where just you are never running 40 yards, let alone in a straight line down the field. The last part was, which I think is obvious to anyone who's followed the league or certainly read you, is, it's always a hybrid approach, right? There is no yeah. team going strictly by the spreadsheet and not a team that's going strictly by the scouting reports. If anything, it would be the latter, right? Teams that are just still for whatever reveling in their ignorance, but it's a, it's a hybrid approach nowadays. It's a hybrid approach. And what's interesting to me is that the, the metrics, we know that Bill Belichick loves the three cone as an example. Yes. Um, I think that what's happening now is we've realized that athleticism is a benchmark to clear. And what I mean by that is that the 40, if you run a four, two, three, that doesn't tell you anything about how good you are at cornerback or wide receiver. We've seen guys, I mean, freaking John Ross is a prime example. He goes out there and he, he looks at the fastest guy in history, the combine, and he gets the NFL and he can't, he can't really play. And some of that's injury or whatever. I think that now what teams understand, Nick Casario is like this, you know, you hear some things about kind of the Packers model, Chris Ballard has adopted a little bit of this because John Dorsey um, worked with John Dorsey in Kansas city. And, and I think that there's a, there's a, a lineage here where athleticism is, is, is really, really valued. And what I think is happening. And I think Nick is, is, is here as well, is that they understand that you can't draft an athletic player, which can be proven by the combine. Um, but that means broad jump, vertical jump, 40 can eliminate you, but can't really help you. Mm -hmm. Three cone short shuttle. Um, Scott Pioli's talked about the the kind of the flying measurements that they, they do where they they basically, I think it's a little bit of three cone and short shuttle where they try to isolate kind of uh, top speed at the front from the combine. Yeah. Um, and so I think the Patriots understand the value of athleticism, which is um, basically a combine, what the combine is measuring. Um, but then I'll also say the 40 yard dash is just so antiquated, partly because, and this is something Pioli's always talked about in the past, Who's running 40 yards in a straight line on a football? Exactly. I mean, it's about short burst. Who is doing that in nine life? seconds? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's about nine seconds going as fast as you can. And that's explosion. And from, from a weird perspective, that's more, you need to change your direction is more important. Um, jumping, which shows explosion in the legs is more important. So it's that. I mean, I, I don't know if you were there, but a handful of years ago, 
um, Pioli and, and Prag Marathe from, from the uh, from the 49ers and a couple other people were talking about the combine stats. And Pioli was saying that they valued hand size, uh, which, by the way, Brady has, Cliff Kingsbury did not. Pioli outed Cliff Kingsbury, somebody who had small hands and couldn't hack it in New England. They valued that as much as they valued some of the other athleticism stuff. So I think teams start to figure out more and more um, what works for them and what doesn't. I think Casario and the Patriots have studied this very closely. Yeah, and I think what you're always trying to do, right, with those tests is make sure that they're going to be replicable on the field. We should only be testing for things that players are going to be doing with a helmet on shoulder pads and a Jersey. And one of his other comments stood out to me because one of the workouts that you omitted was the bench press, which again, largely useless for, you know, maybe a, obviously a kicker or a quarterback or who cares, but he says, it's not the total reps. It's how quickly and explosive do you shoot the bar from on your chest and outward? Yeah. Because that's a motion where, you know, the ball is snapped. If you're an offensive lineman, you're a guard in particular, the sooner you get your hands out, the sooner you put the bar from your chest outward, you make contact. That's an advantage. We want to see that explosion, how fast you can shoot your hands out, obviously with some extra weight. So when you heard him last year or anything you've heard since Albert Breer did a really good breakdown of this, I think a few years ago, basically saying, here's every single team and where they fall on kind of like a spectrum, right? Yeah. Like teams love analytics. Are they kind of in the middle? They're in the bottom 10 stone age. Where do the Patriots fall in your mind? Great question. So I think the amount of studies that they've done, the amount they grasp it is really, really high. But I also think Bill Belichick knows a hell of a lot about football. And I think that he can, he can pretty much go on his gut on a lot of this stuff. And it would actually dovetail a lot. You know, what's interesting to me is at the beginning of the, let's call it the analytics era. And I, I don't really think that's some, it's been some sweeping change over the past 10 years, but I do think that with player tracking data and some of this GPS stuff in practice that the coaches have been able to change things. And I remember talking to uh, Joe Lombardi, uh, who's, who's now the, the Chargers OC. And I said, what are you excited about? And he said, I'm excited to test old theories. Like, mm. oh, this we think that this guy runs a fly route better than anybody in football. Well, now you get the actual speed on that, right? And I kind of think with Belichick, he's seen so much and he knows so much that like, whose eyes are better than Belichick's, right? Like, who, who, who can – if there's anybody who you were like, I'm going to pay this guy and he's, you know, and he's going to decipher one play for me and figure out what's going on, it'd be Bill Belichick, right? Um, he might be the smartest football mind that we've had in, in modern football. And so I don't, I don't know if he needs analytics on every single thing. I think he has such a grasp of every single facet of football that um, I think he grasps it and it's a tool in the toolbox, which is the cliche every GM uses. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that they're sitting around drafting based on, um, based on, on, athleticism scores or any of that stuff by the way i mean like with the draft and we've heard this before sounds like sometimes he just calls up some of his college friends and and asks who's good and goes from there and, and maybe doesn't even um use all that much scouting um and, and you just get watches the tape himself yeah the kill harry and devin asiasi yeah. that's exactly right. right that's that started right. to change but that is an important component where the tool in the toolbox thing i think is something people who are, let's just say, anti-analytics miss, right? Like it's just a piece of information. If you just choose to discard it, you're working with a smaller toolbox and who wants to do that. But you need to apply it correctly. And I think it's interesting too, the way you talk about Belichick's intuition, because I think it's spot on. And I, I would love to credit whomever wrote this up, but there was kind of a retroactive study done about 
the draft and how Belichick had used it once we understood analytically, okay, positional value, right? Running backs in the first round, just skip it. Also remember that was something he did as recently as 2018 with Sonny right. Michelle. But Belichick's intuition and Bill Walsh's intuition with the Niners yeah. and their trades aligned with what is now modern analytical thinking before that was modern analytical thinking. So we knew they were smart, but now here was a way to quantify it. And I think it speaks to what you're saying is intuition, which psychologically is just built up experience that you've acquired more quickly. You know, the kid who sits down and can play you know, Mozart at age seven, like that intuition yeah. is just them processing information and storing it much more quickly than anyone else. That's it reminds me. I agree. It reminds me a little bit of in Moneyball, they talked about this, that Earl Weaver, who is the, the great manager of the Orioles in the seventies, his whole thing was, let's just hit a three run homer as much as we can. <laughs> so what does that mean? What does that mean? It means get guys getting on base and then having guys who can hit for power. Well, guess what happened 30 years later? Everybody ran the numbers. There's all these bankers who are in, in, you know, in charge of teams now, and they say, oh, cool, let's get guys on base and, and then get power hitters as well. And it's like, wait a second, that's what this guy figured out 30 years ago. And so you talk about Bill Walsh, talk about Bill Belichick. Like, sometimes guys who know football can just figure it out on their own. Yeah, that's today that's launch angle, exit velocity. It's right. no, but it's Earl Weaver just going hit the shit out of the ball. Yeah. Um, so so what's an area? Let's go broadly here from just yeah. Patriots, where clearly they're a hybrid model. They've been a hybrid model forever. That fans either underestimate the influence of analytics, which we all know fourth down decisions yeah. come down to win probability. That's great. Or maybe where analytics are kind of misunderstood in football. I think that a lot of it's going to be hidden and it's not going to be obvious unless people tell them. And here's what I mean by that. A couple of things. Number one is most of this data is proprietary. And so mm -hmm. people can't build models. There's no, they're not going to be any kind of baseball perspective style thing where everyone's going to get hired from a place because there's public data and people can build models. And then a team like the Ravens can, can look at it and say, okay, we're going to hire this person. Um, and so it's more about team by team. They hire the analysts. You know, I had a friend uh, a couple of years ago in the analyst community, who this is the year Lamar won the MVP, who called me and he joked with me and he said, bet all your money on the Ravens being good this year because they're hiring some of the smartest data people on the planet. And they were, they were right. They, they lost to Tennessee that year, but, but, but they, they certainly figured some stuff out. But what I would say is that, you know, I wrote a story a couple of years ago and I had heard from some data people and some coaches and some, some GMs, uh, two anecdotes that I think are probably worth monitoring for uh, going forward. Number one is that there was a team where they were looking at their own player tracking and they were realizing that D linemen were running and getting tired as much from running back and forth in substitutions as actually playing. Okay. Hmm. So this coach decided to just start if there was, uh, if they wanted to tire off the D line, just when it looked like a, sub, a substitution situation, just run as far away from the bench as possible and get these big boys running three <laughs> times as long as they normally would, whatever, just a, just a little gamesmanship. Because yeah. They figured with their own GPS data that they could tire out their, you know, the nose tackle or whomever, you know, it's, it's, it's second down or whatever. And you can, you can just do a little bit, you know, and that's not something that you're going to do 150 times over the course of the year, but you can do it a couple times. You can right. do it a couple times and just say, Hey, in the fourth quarter, we might get a little edge because we tired out these guys who were, who were, um, who were substituting. Now, uh, the other thing is that I think you're seeing with the player tracking data, there've been a couple of instances to me uh, where Scouts and front offices have said, hey, we're going to 
uh, we're going to say we're going to retroactively grade this guy that we thought was slow or we missed on him because we couldn't think he changed direction to come by whatever. And now we can use the player tracking data and figure out what he actually plays like in a game with actual measurements. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is so a team, uh, I actually, I remember the team, they're, they're good now, um, but they, they took a guy or they had a sixth round grade in a guy. Okay. That's, that's what I wrote in the story. They had a sixth round grade in the guy. And I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to remember the paragraph I wrote four years ago. Um, but they, they had a, the sixth what do you mean, round you can't do that guy. off the top of your head? Come yeah. On yeah. They, they, they had a sixth round grade on a guy. And then when they pulled up his tracking data, they found out he was way faster in an NFL game than they thought via combine numbers. His instincts were way better. He was moving towards the ball really quickly. And then a meeting with the scouts and said, guys, this was a second round pick. And we missed on the guy because we went on how we ran in Indianapolis and not how we ran on a game. And so I think, you know, that kind of stuff, there's going to be models built. We're going to see this. That's going to inform everything going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the GPS tracking data, cause that's not only just how fast you're going, but you can, you know, uh, quantify that in so many different ways, your segments on the field, the down and distance, like the same way you treat any sort of play in the game tape, you take that with the data. And in particular, you know, your proximity to different players in the field. I think everything you're seeing, let's just call it the NBA, right. With the expected shot, um, field goal percentage based on your proximity to defenders. And then, you know, how well you shoot above or below that also correlates with, if you had to name the top 10 shooters in the league right now, they're all top 10 in that category, but they're not top 10 in your standard field goal percentage because they're taking harder shots and drawing more, more defenders. So I think that's, that's a really great point. Um, all right, we'll, we'll close on this, uh, two 30 to 60 second pitches, one, just your 2022 Patriots thoughts. And then one on F1, which I feel like you can't do a podcast the last six months without some sort of F1 oh my mention. <laughs> or we, okay. could, we could skip. No, 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 no. I'm excited about both these things. All right. Okay. 30 seconds on the clock for my Patriots thoughts. Uh, obviously rowing in the right direction. I am intrigued to see where they go from here. From my perspective, they don't have the barrier of entry talent in the AFC. I just they Mac would have to take a huge step forward, and maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm I'm underrating some of the talent that they have. But when I, I this is a playoff team in my mind, the Patriots, mm-hmm. but they're not a Final Four. I mean, I, I right now the way I I, I viewed it because some GMs view it is I view it. Can a team make the Final Four? Right? Because once you're in the conference championship game, it's a little bit of luck. It's a play here or there. Um, and I don't see the Patriots on that level. Um, I just think there's too much depth, and you know, frankly, I mean. Even it seemed like the Bengals, like there's so, so, so many teams have gone all in that is last year's AFC champion actually equipped to be this year's AFC champion. Um, there's just so much talent in that conference right now. Uh, I, I, I think the world of Bill Belichick, I think the world of, of the crafts and, and the front office and the way they do things. Um, I just don't, when I look at that roster right now, I see a team that loses on the first weekend of the playoffs. So uh, F1. I, I don't know how this happened, but I somehow host one of the most popular <laughs> racing, car racing podcasts uh, in on planet Earth. Uh, that happened. We literally launched it. We decided to launch it three days before the season started. Um, and I got into it right before Drive to Survive. So it was a Netflix show, if you don't know. Um, and I, I got I, in 2017, I got into Formula One. The next year, uh, they started filming for the Netflix thing. And it's exploded. And it's just a fascinating sport i mean they're in a different country every single year excuse me every single week the drivers are glamorous and cool and amazingly talented um they really these dudes in most cases like hate each other um they really get after it uh there's a lot of drama there 
I mean, I think that they've provided a textbook on how to kind of explode as a sport in a country with the Netflix stuff, with how they market, with where they go. I mean, like I, I say this all the time, but like it's you know, at worst, even if you don't like car racing, it's a travel show, right? Like yeah. you're in Australia, you you're in Monaco, yeah. you're in Miami, you're in Imola and in, in Italy this week. So uh, it's 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 that kind of thing, and uh, I recommend trying to to watch Netflix show, watch some races, and see where you go. Awesome. I appreciate the time, Kevin. Obviously, read him, follow him. Uh, I can't wait to see what podcast you're hosting in two years that no one knows what's going to be coming right now if it was F1. Like, what would you have said if you had told yourself two, three years ago you'd be hosting that F1 pod? It's funny. Someone sent me a screen grab the other day of a DM, some listener, that they had sent me in 2019 because I talked about F1 on a couple of podcasts and somebody was like, please do an F1 podcast. And I actually said to them, like, I don't think that's ever... I explained why, but I was like, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Like it's on NFL Sundays in the fall. Like it would be really hard to do. Um, but here we are. So literally, literally, if you had said to me two years ago, you're going to be hosting an F1 podcast that's somehow popular, I would have actually said, I don't, I literally do not believe you. <laughs> All right. Well, shouts to past Kevin for how wrong he was. And uh, can't, <laughs> can't, can't wait to see what future Kevin has. Um, all right. As I said, thank you, man. Can't wait to connect sometime soon. All right. Thanks, bud. Okay. Doug Kide from PFF is here, not PFF Doug. Um, just at Doug Kide kept the personal brand when he jumped ship and went national on us. Uh, Doug, thanks for being here. And look, I'm going to have fun, I think, in all of these segments in the opening pod. It's great to have friends on and, and friends who know what they're talking about. But you can't beat fake trades. Like, this has been the most fun I've had in the offseason writing up an article a couple of weeks ago. Uh, five are out there. Four were good. One was insane, but I want to do a couple more here with you. And you were telling me off air, your fake trade building actually went okay. Yeah, it went pretty well. And I actually used, uh, not to start off here with a plug, but PFF's got a, a mock draft simulator and you can do player trades in those. So it was actually like using that simulator to build these trades. Shameless. I love it. Okay. <laughs> well, the other part about this is like NBA media has this down because trades are just so much more prevalent in the NBA and you have a lot of fun talking about them, writing them up. But when you look at the Patriots offseason, their three biggest moves have all been trades. Shaq Mason out, Devontae Parker in, and Mac Wilson, you know, high five Chase Winovich on his way out uh, to Cleveland. So for the Patriots now, I don't think they have a lot of significant moves left. Their cap room is quite down. We're looking ahead at the draft. And as I've been told, they're not exactly panicking about the roster they have. They feel good while the rest of us, you know, speaking about fans in New England are hysterical. So the trouble with fake trades is you want to be reasonable, right? Like either use the PFF model. I leaned heavily on Rich Hill's draft chart for all the ones that I involved in, in draft picks. And I'll skip the ones that I wrote earlier with the exception of one, because corner to me is the biggest need. And I had Greedy Williams from Cleveland coming over in a pick swap, a, a fifth out for Greedy and a seventh. He's a former second round pick, highly talented, got some spotty injury history, but was good enough to be their third outside corner. And in the final year of his deal, they're probably not going to be able to retain him because the Browns are just already out of cap space with John Watson looking ahead to next season when he'll be a free agent. So did you, are any of your fake trades involving a corner? Cause I couldn't make any others really work besides greedy. Yeah, it's, it would be tough to work it around the cap situation, but I, I did make a fake trade for a cornerback. Yes. Um, good. New York Giants, James Bradbury in a 2022 fourth for a 2022 second round pick. Uh, Patriots obviously have a major need there at cornerback. 
James Bradbury seems to be on the outs of the Giants. I think everyone was expecting him to get traded really in March. That didn't happen. But there is that connection there with Joe Judge. And, you know, in the past, when the Patriots, you know, brought back Josh McDaniels, they signed a bunch of guys who were on the Rams and the Broncos and everything like that. I think you could see something similar. We already have with Jabril Peppers of a former Lions and former Giants coming over Mm. just because Joe Judge and Matt Patricia are now back in New England. Yeah, I like it. I looked at Bradbury too, the cap and him being, I think it was the last year of his deal right in New York. Yeah. Yeah, it was the issue for me. And I think that's probably why he's still there, right? Just that number. And they would like to move off him as one of the few teams that go, look, we're not going to win this year. I think there are so few teams in the league, you know, and I, I rarely look too far outside of New England, but I was trying to, you know, from the Patriots perspective, be a vulture picking at the roster remains of like the Bears, you know, or like the Lions are going to be competitive. And there just weren't that many players But one of the ones that I did find went to defensive tackle. So speaking of Detroit, there's a guy who, and this is, this kind of just got me back on some old draft crushes, right? Where you have gotten like, you know, the second or third year, maybe the fourth, but John Pennesini. So this is a a boring pick. He's 330 pounds, six foot two, played in 16 games last year. And thank God this dude is 6'2", 330, because I cannot imagine the teasing he had as a kid with the last name Pennicini. Um, But he's a run stuffer, right? The Patriots did not resign Carl Davis. And their interior run defense, I've said this a lot in the last couple of weeks, was sneakily one of the worst in the league. Bottom 10 by yards per carry allowed between the tackles and same in terms of total yardage. So he's a rotational player, two years left in his deal, former late round pick. And I think you get him going, hey, Detroit, take our sixth, take our fifth, just send back John and a, a seventh, and then you add to your depth, and he's still a young guy who's probably just in the wrong scheme. Yeah, absolutely. I I swung kind of a, a similar trade for another big body, but this one on offense, uh, and that's with the Philadelphia Eagles for Andre Dillard. Mm, I like he lost it. that left tackle spot um, to Jordan Mailata. He's a backup. You know, awkward when a 2019 first round pick. Isn't doing much. The Patriots know quite a bit about that. Uh, but <laughs> so I traded a 2022 fifth plus a 2023 sixth for Andre Dillard. Wow. Um, not sure if that's quite enough to get it done. Like I said, using the PFF model with our, our mock draft simulator, it was. Um, I could see it maybe being a fourth and a sixth, but somewhere in there. I, I don't think you want to give up a high pick for Andre Dillard, but he's a guy who could potentially contribute this season as a swing tackle or maybe kick him inside the guard, see how that goes for him. And that's the Patriots' biggest remaining need right now is on that offensive line. No matter how they shift on those pieces, they really need one more starter in there. Otherwise, you're basically bringing someone from, from your depth, from your reserves into a starting role, someone like Justin Huron or, um, you know, James Fair and something like that. So yeah, bring in a guy who didn't work out with the Eagles, see if he can go a little bit better with Patriots. Um, And it it would be somewhat reminiscent of when the Patriots acquired Trent Brown a few years ago and trade with the San Francisco 49ers. And that goes back to your point where, yeah, everyone freaks out about what the Patriots have done so far this off season, but there's always those trades that come around the draft that wind up being high impact moves. And that certainly was the case back in 2018 when the Patriots uh, traded for Trent Brown. And then they obviously went on to win a uh, Super Bowl. 
Definitely. And I looked at Dillard too, in the sense that what held me back was just the final year of his contract. But I think what counters that, right, is you bring him on board, you get a good look at him. And then next off season, you go, okay, we'll just take our pick Isaiah Winner, Andre Dillard. And that's built in baked in leverage for them when they go to discuss, presuming they want either of them to stay. And then the other part is, you know, when I was reporting around their interest with Lyle Collins, I had heard they were willing to move Isaiah Wynn to guard to make room follow up Lyle Collins, either at left or right tackle, depending on where they wanted to put Trent Brown. So I'm not saying you could do that immediately, but you at least explore it, right? With Dillard as a left tackle, win at left guard. Suddenly your offensive line is in great shape now. Long-term is another issue, but I like it because also in reading more about Dillard, <laughs> there were so many Eagles beat writers that were all over this with Howie at the Combine, basically putting up a for sale sign on Dillard. Oh, he's in great shape. Things look so good. We just, oh, it's so unfortunate. We have this talented third tackle saying, come get him. And that's, that's exactly right. What you mentioned deals get done in the draft because prices get depressed and teams like the Patriots who will wait all day for you to come back to them to go, okay, we'll take them, but it's at our price. Definitely. And, you know, there's also trades in the draft around the draft happen. And in the Trent Brown situation, it's because the 49ers took an offensive tackle in the first round. So you might see some of that as well. You know, not saying that this is going to happen, but if the Lions wind up taking an offensive lineman like Iki Iquano or something like that with the second overall pick, then maybe someone like Taylor Decker becomes available. It'd be tough for the Patriots to fit him under, under the cap. Uh, there's ways to do that. But yeah, sometimes guys who don't seem like they would be available now suddenly do become available after the first round of the draft. Yeah. Um, sticking with the Eagles here for a second, I didn't complete this trade, but I, I at least like started a conversation here. So a fake phone call, the Patriots call up Harry Roseman and say, how is Brandon Graham doing recovering from that ruptured Achilles? Last year of his contract, yes, he's 34, but prior to last year, had a long history of being a well-rounded edge defender, which they really need, right? Like you could plug in a Josh Uche, a Ronnie Perkins on third down, okay? But you need someone at first and second. Brand, Brandon Graham obviously provides some sort of pass rush. The trouble is his contract is a couple extra void years tacked onto it, which depresses his price now. Great for the Patriots. Really bad for the Eagles who probably care about that dead cap that's going on in 2023, 2024, and a little bit in 2025. So I'm not sure, you know, what the machinations are of reworking a contract with that many board years. It could be simple. Brandon Graham is now the longest tenured athlete in Philly, not only just on the Eagles, but the entire city. That's not an easy goodbye to make, but I think they've got enough young edge guys. And the edge has become, I think, an overlooked position for the Patriots in need when you're going, who do you trust to step in there? Because Kyle Van Noy's gone, and I think they know more than we do making those moves Hightower still not back, but it's just, I don't know who's inspiring confidence opposite Matt Judon. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Trey flowers is still out there available. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be shocked if something got done uh, with him just because of the, the connection there. And I believe he even shares an agent or a pseudo agent uh, with Bill Belichick. So there's <laughs> always that, that connection there yeah. as well, but you know, player trades in the NFL I wrote something recently about player for player trades for PFF. And one thing that didn't fit, make it into the article actually, because someone told me this basically at, like the next day after it was published, but it's basically just that, you know, signing bonus proration really hurts player trades in the NFL because teams don't want all that signing bonus proration to get accelerated onto their cap. As soon as they trade a player, if, if they could kind of figure something out where that didn't happen, I think that you would see more trades in the NFL and you'd even see a lot more player for player trades. Uh, but yeah, having to take on 
dead cap and have that accelerated onto your cap certainly hurts on any of these deals. Uh, one final one that I had on here was, uh, I mentioned before, the 2019 first round pick, it didn't work out for the Patriots, trading away Nikhil Harry. And I had a couple of different ideas for this. Bag of uh, footballs. What was that? <laughs> a yes, bag, bag of footballs. Of yeah. One was, hey, just flip him to the Baltimore Ravens for Miles Boykin. Everyone, you know, get get your wide receiver, your big talented, you know, big athletic wide receiver. The one that people have talked about a little bit more is is flipping him to the Cardinals for uh, what's his name, the uh, the UMass Andy Isabella. Yeah, this is the receiver version of Mac Wilson for Chase Winovich. Just right, yeah. just just flipping him that way. The the one that I actually came up with though would be trading Nikhil Harry plus a sixth round pick to the Houston Texans for Max Sharping. Uh, he's another offensive lineman. I know offensive line trades aren't the, the sexiest thing out there, but he's a six foot six offensive lineman. I think he's mostly played guard with the Houston Texans, but uh, he's played a little bit of tackle as well. He's another guy that maybe you could fit into a starting role. The Patriots showed interest in Ryan Bates this offseason. They clearly still see a need there at guard. So, you know, Max Sharping doesn't have a, a starting role with the Texans. So uh, maybe, you know, they take on Nikhil Harry, get the six round pick and then get something in return for Max Sharping. Yeah. I like it. He was a good um, prospect. Remember Northern Illinois, right? Yep. Yeah. Coming out graded very highly yeah, his pass protection rather than the run blocking. He's not going to be a mauler again. They don't need anyone right now, which is why I kind of steered clear of the offensive tackle going you know, if you're going to deal for someone, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it's a one-year deal, unless it's someone as talented as Andre Dillard. And then if he's under contract for two plus years, he'll cost a premium. So at that point, just invest the first round pick. But Sharping is a guy you don't need to count on right now to start and could develop. And if it is a pick swap where you're getting off of Nikhil Harry, you know, you're not losing a ton of capital in the process and still get a guy who's worth, you know, uh, an offensive lineman, you would take that late. So I like that. Um, the other positions, because I'm sure people, you know, I, I skipped on cornerback. Every team in the league would take a corner and an edge guy. Another edge guy that I looked and I, I have, mind if I tell you two that also didn't work out because I had two with two with the bears and Robert Quinn was one that got my attention. He doesn't fit the early down player, right? Never a good run defender, but he's someone who's given the Patriots trouble. Historically, you plug him in on third down, not a problem. Jabril Peppers took this one off the table. Eddie Jackson as a buy low opportunity with one of the worst contracts in the world, you know, the world in the league, you'd have to restructure it. No, but at that point, you've got five safeties on the roster. You see him as an Alabama guy who's played some single high played in the box, maybe, maybe, maybe long-term Devin McCourty replacement. He's still under 30, um, but the money is too much. It's just, again, one of those like teams I talk about, they're only the bears, you know, somewhat the Jaguars, even though they loaded up where you're just trying to pick off the roster for guys and go, yeah, take some picks. But obviously for the reasons I mentioned, neither of those are going to work out. Yeah. And I mean, those are also interesting teams because of the coaching changes that they've had. So right. it's certainly possible that they have inherited players that they no longer feel fit their system. And that's something that we saw earlier this off season with the trade between the Raiders and the Colts where Yannick and Gakwe maybe didn't necessarily fit what the Raiders wanted to do anymore. Rocky Asin uh, probably didn't fit exactly what Gus Bradley uh, wanted to do with the Indianapolis Colts. So that was a situation where it made sense to, you know, do a, a player for player swap where two guys don't necessarily fit the system where, you know, the Patriots would 
there, there's no reason for them to be trading players away that don't fit their system. But if there are guys on other teams, teams that you mentioned, like the Jaguars or the Bears, who have undergone coaching changes or or GM changes or whatever it is, um, then yeah, there, there's certainly the possibility that they could take on some of those players that no longer fit the the scheme that the, those teams are now running. Yeah, I like it. And Jacksonville too, you know, if they take a tackle at the top, which I know everyone's leaned towards Aiden Hutchinson, maybe they, you know, no one really wants to trade up in this kind of a draft, but maybe you make a call then, right? You know, you, you're stocked at offensive tackle now and for the future and the Patriots might try to swing a deal. Um, I'll get you out on this. Do you think the Patriots make a fourth trade this offseason? And if you had to bet, what, what does it look like? I do. I feel like they do make some sort of, you know, entering the second day of the draft uh, trade for someone that, that kind of Trent Brown type deal. Um, I don't necessarily think it's going to be someone like James Bradbury, but I could see it being an offensive lineman. Uh, You know, the ones that I put together, like I said, were for Audrey Dillard and Max Sharping. I could certainly see either one of those, but if a team, like you said, like the Jaguars take an offensive tackle, the Lions take an offensive tackle. One of these teams that you don't necessarily think has a need an offensive tackle, if they take one pretty early in the first round, then suddenly another player who's being penciled in as a starter now becomes available. So I think that that's the way that I could kind of see it shaking out where maybe we don't know exactly who that player is right now at this point, but Mm -hmm. we would know after the first round of the draft. I like it. The one that I want is they don't have a seventh round pick. They need to trade back and get there is just the bill calls Kansas city and says, Brett Veach, get off the phone. I need to talk to Andy. It says <laughs> we need to restart this tradition of just making draft trades that are totally pointless, but just a way to call up and say, nice draft. We'll see you next year. Cause they, I don't know how long that streak was where it was the Patriots and Eagles when Andy Reed was down there making those trades at the end of the draft, literally just for kicks. So that's what I want to hear start uh, again here in the draft, but I, I'm with you. I think they make one more deal. It'll be some sort of pick swap kind of addressing an area of need, but similar to like what we've seen so far with the Mac Wilson, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't pen him in, you don't sharpie him into the depth chart, but like pencils fine, right? Like who's his competition inside linebacker. And that's someone who could, who could definitely help them. Well, Doug, you have helped me. This has been a lot of fun. I'm still going to think about more fake trades, not as insane as the Debo Samuel pitch I made earlier, but I think uh, you've come down and found a good balance between reasonable and kind of fun here. Yeah. And I I guess if I did have to throw in like a a crazy one, first round pick for AJ Brown um, and uh Maybe a first and a fourth for AJ Brown. How's yes. that? Yes. Yeah. I love go. it. Let's get nuts. Yeah. Plenty of good receivers. Um, all right. We'll get you out on that. Doug, thank you so much for the time. You're the best. Absolutely. Anytime. Okay. Jeff Howe in the house to tell us league wide what the impression is of the Patriots offseason. Jeff, now national NFL insider for the athletic. Do you get uh, tired of hearing that yet? It's been almost a year, but. Nope. It's- nope. Keep bringing it on. Yeah. Over and over again. Okay. Good. So you touch base with some sources. And I touched base with some of my own sources who had told me that you actually, in preparation for this pod, Pat's Interference, went to all 31 teams and said, look, I, I have to be on Pat's Interference. I need to hear from you as soon as possible about the Patriots, what you think. So I, I applaud your preparation and effort. And thank you, Jeff, for holding this pod already in its infant form in such high esteem. Well, it's been a busy week for teams. You know, some of them are getting underway with their offseason workout program. Others are knee deep in draft prep. Others got their top 30 visits going on. But when I sent that text, they dropped everything. You know, they told Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett to just, you know, hey, guys, you know what? Take take lunch down the street. I got to talk to Jeff. So this is all for all for you. (laughs) I love it. All right. So this um, 
This is something I touched upon just with one executive who works for a team that played the Patriots last year. And he laid out a lot of thoughts a couple of weeks ago that I think a lot of people have already. It was surprising that the Patriots didn't spend more. His quote was, I thought they would have seen there was more of a gap that they needed to close and just didn't. But he thinks, you know, as long as I've heard some things that they think they're right there, they'll hit the draft for some cost control players, develop and maybe catch Buffalo. How much of that is what you heard and what was different from that? I've actually, I was surprised to hear the opposite so far. Mm. And, you know, I've still got some, some more people I'm hoping to talk to on this topic uh, throughout the week, but it's the couple people I spoke to just, you know, a day ago were like, this is exactly how I expected the Patriots off season to go because last year was so, so, so out of character, like not even close to what they've done financially for 20 plus years that there, something had to correct itself. And of course, like there's an arms race in the AFC and there's going to be probably a gap. And we saw what the gap was between the Patriots and Buffalo just in the division over the last two games. But, you know, the, the Patriots, I think to your initial point there, you look at the way Buffalo has built their roster since McDermott took over and Bean has been in town. You know, this has been a year by year by year uh, process for them. And I think that's why, you saw that correct itself from the wind game into those final two meetings. You know, this is a team that has been built up over years where the Patriots, where the Patriots uh, were, were basically an overnight rebuilds uh, in free agency last year. And they just didn't have enough to compete with what Buffalo was throwing at them. And if they start to string three or four of these drafts together, you could see the rebuild happen a little more quickly. Yeah, and I think the point about Buffalo developing, let's just call it, you know, the quote unquote right way, right? You know, there are different ways to do it, but however you approach team building, but I think it's important to talk about that gap with Buffalo because Buffalo employed some of the same roster building practices the Patriots did. I talked about middle-class veterans, you know, building around a quarterback with a low, you know, market contract with Brady for so many years. But the gap is they didn't punt for a whole game and half of the game beforehand that's a big gap. And it spoke to, you know, the executive I spoke with was just, he talked about explosion offensive and defensively. And that's what, you know, surprised me about, Hey, you're not surprised about what they did, but they didn't necessarily fix that kind of speed gap on either side of the ball with the guys that got even like a Devonte Parker. Uh, like you said, you know, Buffalo's done a good job, especially at in the defensive backfield and the linebacker finding those versatile players who they had envisioned a role for that were castoffs and, uh, had become really good, dependable players for several years for the Bills. And, and we know the Patriots have been really good at that over the years. But in terms of adding that speed, you know, you have to start hitting on multiple draft picks. It's got to be a minimum of three, more ideally four or five every single year to try to catch up with what Buffalo can throw at you. And, you know, just it's 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 a lot. I mean, they they've got a lot to make up for on the defensive side. But again, I, I just I think. It's going to take patience. I mean, I said like in terms of like, yeah, if you string together a few drafts, it'll come together quickly. But like that, a few drafts still is that's you know, hard. It's a crapshoot. Two years into it, you're still a minimum of two years away. But if you can be competitive, if you can still kind of chip away, you know, we'll see what Mac Jones turns into. We'll see what that offense looks looks like. Uh, you know, they've got questions on the offensive line too. So there's there, there's a lot of uncertainty going in. Yeah. Was there any comment just circling back to people you talked around the league where I think there's still hope for guys like Uche, right? Because they're a high draft pick. You're going to get the benefit of the doubt more than anyone else on a roster. 
because you've been invested in, but you have some raw talent. They believe you can try out. Was there any straight comment that kind of maybe was something you hadn't thought of about the Patriots offseason that people might be missing that someone in another front office or coaching staff picked up on? I think I was asking someone about the cap situation and when the bills. So look, this is, this is a conversation that deserves probably two hours and we're going to get through it in two minutes. So you say the cap is crap. I'm, there's going to be a mute here, button hit, and I'm not sure we're going to hear from you again, but I, uh, I'm ready no, for some okay. nuance. If you got it, you're not going to hear me regurgitating uh, that, that show. Thank uh, you. This is, but like with, with the bills, when they signed Von Miller to let's call it a three year, $52 million deal, yes. they had $2 million in cap space. When the Rams made all those moves, uh, who was their big signing? The, the uh, Allen Robinson. They had $2 million in cap space. Uh, the Saints, for the 75, 75th million year in a row, somehow moved $90 million into future years. I mean, this is what a lot of teams are getting really good at, and the Patriots haven't. And, you know, I spoke to somebody and I said, are, are they, you know, why, why aren't they doing this? And they just said, look, that's their structure. That's how they do it. And so I wonder, you know, is that, is it the right structure? Is it the right way to do things? Because, you know, these, these teams are proving that they can, the Rams just did it. They just won a Super Bowl by pushing money down the line. And the Saints have been somewhat competitive while continuously pushing money down the line. We'll find out what happens with the Bills as they're continuing to go all in. Uh, but there's there are case studies in, in various different ways. I mean, the quarterback contracts I've written about in recent months, just in terms of like guys who are now taking about between 15 and 20 percent of the salary cap. That has never been conducive to success. But, you know, we'll find out how teams manage that type of situation. We'll find out how these aggressive teams are able to handle the cap, let's say, three, four years from now. Let's just say two, three years from now. Um, I, I personally think they'll be fine because there's the the gambling money and the tv money is going to cause the the cap to really continue to explode by disproportionate numbers so i think as long as you only do it with two or three players every year you're probably going to ultimately be okay the patriots did that with tom brady and you know life after brady hasn't been as easy but you know there, there are different ways to do this uh you know another case study is how teams are handling receivers uh, after the adams and hill trades so there's a, there's a lot going on right now in the league that I think is pretty fascinating, but as it relates to the Patriots, we'll find out how their handling of the cap uh, is ultimately going to work out over the long term. Yeah. All right. Um, but let's just dive into the cap then really quickly, because I think there are a couple, you know, easily digestible explanations for what the Patriots are doing. One of them you hit on from that executive or coach or whomever it was. They, this is what they do, you know, and they're continuing to do business as they see fit which is with a long-term vision in mind of sustainable roster building. And so right now, I think they might even feel emboldened, right? Because the way that they do business is also to zig when the whole rest of the league is zagging. That could go for a scheme, playing a 3-4 front at the start of Belichick's tenure, passing more four down, then coming back to two-gapping. And so when everyone else is going all in, that price and that cost is going to come, you know, at some point, probably next year, at which point the Patriots right now are the top 10 in available cap space. So I think for them, they look at it not only as zigging when other people are zagging, this has worked for us for 20, 22 years, but also it's better in their minds to be very good over a long period of time versus going all in and we're gonna be excellent for two years. Because if you miss that window, again, the buck is gonna come. It's why Tyree Kill was shipped out of Kansas City. It's why Devontae Adams is no longer in Green Bay. The cap matters. 
So with that in mind, I think they understand that they're not out in 2022, but they're going to go, we'll be in the mix. We just understand that in 2023, we'll have a better opportunity, which fits with our kind of trajectory and our timeline here, which of course is tied to Mac Jones. There are counterpoints that we could continue to throw back and forth. Uh, but, you know, specifically as it relates to the Patriots, I mean, they are, you know, we'll see. Um, but like you said, they are, they're really good at, at forward thinking and keeping themselves in a position. And like you mentioned, you know, a year from now, when they're going to have a really good cap situation, you know, they might have a chance to maybe not go all in like they did last year, but hit on some of these other holes. And then another side of it is looking at, to, to defend them and their stance of not pushing all this money down the line. They didn't have a whole lot of contracts that were really worth pushing down the line, just the way a lot of them were structured. So, yeah, they could have done it with Shaq Mason. They traded him. You know, we'll see how that one works out. Well, it was also all the guys they signed last year, right? You right. know, if they're, if they're beyond two years. Now, Sagalar, free agent, he's in the final year of his deal now as a two-year contract. You could have kicked Judon down the road. Hunter Henry has a third year coming up. Like, that was an opportunity. But let's, let's stay there because I think that's the important point of that free agency splurge. A explains what they did this season because they saw that where most of us didn't as a multi-year kind of commitment, right? Not only just in the contracts, because most of those cap hits are hitting now. They're crushing their cap now and limiting yep. their space in 2022 versus 2021 when the contracts were signed. So that was pushed out a year. I think they also see this as a developmental piece where Jonathan Smith didn't go to OTAs last year. And for, for decent reasons, you have a rookie quarterback. It's going to take time for all those pieces to come together. So if you don't win in 2021, sure, that's when you sign them. But you're going to have them in 2022 for the cap reasons. And let's go back even further, because why did you need to make that for agency splurge? I think you go back, it was the drafts catching up with them, right? Since 2016, you've had one of the worst draft stretches from 16 to 20. When you don't hit on those cost control players, you got to go into free agency, spend some more money to fill those roster holes. And I would argue there's only really one year where they went all in for this team and sacrifice and future flexibility. And it was 2019. Tom Brady's last year, and I'm not saying there wasn't, you know, an instant where 2017, they spent a lot of money, but you look at the deals they did then. Antonio Brown got one year, 15 million. And there was a lot of guarantees that Bill rushed in to make that contract work. They give up a second round pick for Muhammad Sanu and traded for Michael Bennett. That didn't work. All the dead money, plus when Brady left them with the dead money, suffocated their 2020 cap. Perfect storm of just your drafts catching up with you. That leads to 2021 splurge. So Taking this all the way back, they don't see going all in necessarily as being fruitful because 2019, you get bounced to the playoffs. Now, it wasn't just the free agent spending or the bad drafts. It was both of them. And so what I think is their free agency approach is probably pretty evergreen, but it comes back to what you were saying before with Buffalo. You close that gap not by spending more now. You close that gap by spending and drafting better this year and last year and the year before because that's where the sustainability comes from. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with with all of that. And, you know, another couple points with, you know, Robert Kraft met with media uh, down in Florida and he, he met with he, you he, Let's start there. He did. He did. <laughs> and we, had, we had a good we had a good stroll. Uh, but, he, you know, he also met with the group and and I was listening to that, too. And, and he mentioned how, you know, the, the the roster building, you know, it's not done just because the, the big hitters and free agency were gone. It's not done. And then a few days later, they traded for Devontae Parker. So 
there are probably still several moves that Belichick is planning to make that won't come in the more traditional sign, you know, free agency way. You know, there's probably some trade targets that they're looking at, some potential, especially after the draft, when teams are going to have different types of needs or or, or a surplus. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, surplus at a certain position. I mean, the Trent Brown trade initially happened during the draft. Uh, so those are different types of ways to to sub or you know fill the roster. And then I also thought it was interesting uh, during my conversation with Kraft is that he was mentioning the he, he didn't say anybody specific, but I think we can all look toward Nelson Aguilar and Johnny Smith as guys who didn't he didn't name them but as guys who came in last year and didn't produce the way that people expected them to. And he thought that, Hey, you know, Mac Jones is going to take a big jump next year. And he expected free agents who came in last year to also take a big jump and how the offensive coaching staff, or he didn't say the offensive coaching staff, because again, he didn't name anybody in particular, but he said (laughs) the coaching staff is working on ways to make those free agents more productive. And that's something the Patriots have always done, but I just thought it was interesting that Kraft pointed that out because a year ago, Kraft pointed out how how pleased he was with the way they redesigned their pre-draft operation. And obviously they turned in their best draft in quite a while. So I thought for Kraft to point that out a year ago, thought in real time, that was very interesting. I think we all did. But it, what he said, just about the way the staff is working to you know bring the best out of some of those free agents this year, I think that shows that he's optimistic about what their plan is going forward with those guys too. So, you know, if they get like the the person I spoke with the other day said, if they get some of these young guys like Uche to take a jump or, or you know, Cameron Grone is another one who I, I think fans have a reason to be excited about, you know, so on and so forth. If those guys make the jump, if some of these free agents make the jump, you know, I'm not saying the Patriots are all of a sudden going to be contending with everybody in the AFC West for the, the conference championship, or they're going to dethrone Buffalo or anything like that. But they'll be there in the end. And then if they're healthy, you know, maybe they're one of those teams that sneaks into the playoffs. If everything goes right. And there are 9, 10, 11 potential contenders in the AFC right now. That means there's going to be like upwards of like four really, really good teams on paper right now who are not going to be in the playoffs. Why is that going to happen? Well, maybe chemistry, maybe injuries, whatever. Uh, not everything is going to go right for all of those teams. Maybe not everything goes right for the Patriots, but if it does, you know, they're going to be in the mix like they usually are. Yeah. So we started this with me asking you, what did the league say about how the Patriots went? And they said they did what they've always done. It was kind of what we expected. And I think the changes you just mentioned, be it last year before the draft that led to obviously a more productive, we can call this now one of their best draft classes of Mac Jones, Christian Barmore, Ramondre Stevenson, plus whatever they get from other guys as a success. Those changes underneath this, this is how we approach spending in, in, in team building had success. So what are they doing now? I think with the draft and their other decisions will determine how they evolve because every team needs to evolve and change, right? Like they can still have their big picture Patriot way, but underneath how do those changes help them move forward? Because I think, you know, talking about, you know, if this happened and everyone makes a leap, nothing ever always goes right for every team. They have to adjust, adjust and adapt and evolve. And that helps with depth. So I think it'll be interesting for a guy like Kraft, who's not only going, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with a three-year run because I identify as a Patriots fan, the first thing he said, but it was, that's his money, right? <laughs> I almost like to see cash go down the toilet. So if he's encouraged, as we heard a year ago, which he's, he's only generally going to say positive things about the changes underneath in the front office, which led to instant success. 
I think that's a reason and optimism itself for the Patriots aren't so arrogant to say, yeah, in the big picture, we're doing business as always, but underneath we're changing certain things that are going to lead to different outcomes. And last year was a good example of that. All right. Uh, last thing from you um, on this, anything just about the Patriots standing in the league really quick before we get a one mission shout out. Uh, no, I think that's uh that pretty much covers it. I was just thinking, you know, it's crafts money. I was like, you know, I, I love my daughters, you know, they're, they, they make me happy every single day when they, when they don't eat a, a dollar packet of yogurt and I have to throw that in the trash. I'm like, Hey, that's my money. I worked hard for that dollar, yeah. you know, and that's the equivalent of Robert Kraft's 50 million, I think. Yeah. Yo play um, Nelson Aguilar. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cool. All right. Uh, so one mission is an organization that helps pediatric cancer patients. You have done great work with them uh, for years, brought me on in 2020 to all shave our heads. Some of us kept the look, others did not. Um, just give a few minutes about them, their good work, because obviously in your recent battle and victory over, you know, uh, cancer, it's, it's been great to continue working with them and the great impact they have on kids with cancer. Yeah. Uh, thanks for bringing that up and thanks for doing such a uh, significant job of organizing that thousand dollar donation a few weeks ago to one mission. I mean, that's, you deserve all the, a ton of credit for that. And, you know, as to about what, 18 other guys or 18 other reporters, I should say, not all guys, uh, 18 other reporters who, you know, chipped in and, and made a significant donation to an organization that does a lot of great work. And, and uh, I mean, I think we've all known how awesome they are over the years. They uh, have the buzz off every year at Gillette stadium. So a lot of Patriots fans uh, recognize the work that they've done. Rob Gronkowski has done a lot to bring them to the forefront of the media attention and, and the the spotlight they deserve uh the, you know they 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 try to make this uh this type of battle as easy as possible for children and their families but i had uh i gained a newfound appreciation for them you know just recently uh dealing with thyroid cancer that we've thankfully gotten rid of uh you know i had a uh i circled back with them or we sort of just circled back uh coincidentally recently and i i said you know let's uh you know, let's, let's put a couple more projects together. I wanted to use my, I've always said, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that I have, you know, a hundred thousand Twitter followers just because I write about football and I've always wanted to do something. You make some great dick jokes. Don't sell yourself short. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm, I'm four years old in yeah. upstairs still. So it's uh, you know, we, we have a little fun with that, but I, I like to be able to try to do something positive with this platform. And you know, unfortunately, I had to deal with my own personal experience, but I want to be able to use that to, to help people who who need, um, you know, some assistance a whole lot more than I did. Uh, but I did need some assistance. And and I it came from sort of a, a place that I didn't expect it from one mission because they deal with, you know, younger uh, people who, who have dealt with this. But, you know, as we were talking, I said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with this this mental hurdle. You know, I feel like um dealing with some some guilt that I had a type of cancer that was easier to beat than some other people. You know, I didn't have to deal with chemotherapy. I I mean, you know, I, I knew I needed the thyroid removed. I knew I knew I needed this surgery, which was a major surgery. Um, but I technically, you know, I had that removed on March 11th. I knew I wasn't going to get the pathology until March 21st. So I technically beat cancer before I even knew I had it. So like I've kind of dealt with uh, and I've gotten a lot through it, but, you know, I've kind of dealt with this guilt of, you know, why, why did I have it so much easier? And I've been able to speak to some people and, uh, you know, I have a friend who's an oncologist who was giving me some great advice. Who was like, Hey, you know what? Like you had a major surgery and that recovery, it, that recovery sucked. I can vouch for that. Um, 
but it was somebody from one mission who was like, Hey, you know, let's talk about this. And, and they were able to share their personal story. And, and that was like the second conversation that I really needed to, to get over a lot of this mental hurdle. So just what they do, I'm just so appreciative of it. And, and I'm, uh, and I love the fact that they have continued to bring me on board to help out in any way I can. And I'm going to be shaving my head down at Gillette stadium this year. I'm, I'm pumped to do that. I've got another, uh, another project that I'm in the works for. I haven't finalized it yet, but I'm, I'm very close to doing it. And I want to be able to, when I do, I'm going to be able to tweet out those fundraising links so we can hopefully raise, you know, quite a bit more money for an outstanding an organization that does outstanding work. That'd be fantastic. Um, you can find one mission at one mission.org spelled exactly as you would think they give money to families directly to help pay for parking at the hospital parties for the kids uh, in and around when they're, you know, basically strapped to their beds, educational programs, recreational programs, just all the things that go beyond immediate medical attention and care, but matter in the long haul for these kids who are battling cancer. So Jeff, that was awesome. I'll be there for anything you need me on that front. Um, I dick jokes won't be as good, but follow Jeff, uh, you know, on Twitter, read him at The Athletic. And this was awesome, man. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Thanks for having me.